0: Hello and welcome back to The Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. This week, my guest is Liberty King. Liberty is an education strategy consultant, a former teacher and a member of the Good Work Board. In this episode, we talk about her experiences as a classroom teacher, whether we really do live in a meritocracy and why diversity in recruitment is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to making real change in early careers. Liberty, welcome to the Good Work podcast.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. So, Liberty, can you tell us a little bit about what you do?
1: Yes. So, I am currently a strategy consultant at a company called Cairn Eagle which is a boutique consultancy that serves the education and ed tech sectors. I started out after uni as a teacher on the Teach First programme, which for people who don't know what that is, is a sort of accelerated teacher training programme where you work in schools that serve high numbers of disadvantaged students. Um, and I think during this time, I sort of realised I wanted to have a bigger impact. So did a master's yeah. in international education policy. So after that, I moved to the Education Endowment Foundation, which is a government funded organisation looking at how we can use data and evidence to improve outcomes for disadvantaged students. So I would say I'm a bit of a generalist in the education space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what did you teach when you were um, a teacher? So I did secondary English. So I was in a secondary school with big kids are there any kind of lessons that you take from that time that you kind of continue to think about or experiences that you had that kind of continue to drive or impact the work that you do today?
1: Yeah, I think, it's oh, that's a really good question. I think, um, the, probably the biggest thing that I took away from that, that time is patience and yeah. persistence is so important in this space because there were some students I worked with that had very difficult home lives Mm -hmm. and some days would be really engaged and really interested and I thought I'm making progress with them, like they're starting to kind of come on board and then the next day, whatever had happened between I saw them in my class one day and then seeing them in my class the next day, whatever had happened had happened and they were completely disengaged not wanting to interact the the next day and you kind of feel like you're taking five steps backwards and I think that could be quite demoralizing sometimes but obviously Mm -hmm. you can't just give up when that happens so yeah definitely patience and persistence are those kind of biggest the biggest lessons that I learned from that experience.
0: Yeah and did you I mean how did you end up working in education was it always something you would wanted to do or something that's kind of happened more by accident?
1: Yeah, this is a interesting one. I think I think I always thought that my kind of journey in education started when I applied to Teach First. Yeah. And, and that at the time what actually appealed to me about Teach First was this kind of social mission. So the social mobility aspect, the fact yeah. that I'm working with disadvantaged students. And also the fact that it was quite a reputable grad scheme to get onto. And I think it kind of at the time felt like it was just a coincidence that it happened to be in education as well. Mm-hmm. But then when I think about it, I actually have always been very interested in working with young people. Like thinking back to even when I was seven, eight years old, I would always want to play school with my friends <laughs> yeah. and my cousin. And I'd always <laughs> want to be the teacher. And um, I, I was always like to- that too. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, isn't it? And I would remember doing it. I used to just do it like sometimes I would set up classrooms with just my beanie babies and not even teach a real person. And I loved it. And I'd always loved babysitting, like the kind of neighbours around the corner when I was a teenager. And then the job that I had at uni was working as a instructor on a kids sports camp Mm -hmm. and loved doing that as well. So I think I've always been drawn to working with young people and inspiring them to learn. So the fact that I, I did a grad scheme in the education space actually makes a lot of sense. So I do think it's always been kind of written in the stars, probably that I'd be working in the education space, even though I didn't even consciously think that.
0: Yeah, see, that sounds much better. Whereas, um, when I think back to playing school, I I think my parents were told it was because I just liked being in charge, and it was like the model I'd had in life of what who was in charge was teachers, so I liked playing at being a teacher. But that probably says a lot more about me. <laughs> so, and and thinking as well about your experience as a teacher. What were the kind of structural issues? Because you said you know you wanted to kind of move on and work in a space um and, and work in a way that would allow you to have more of a, a broad impact beyond kind of what you could do in a classroom day to day. What were the structural issues that you identified that kind of drove that decision?
1: Yeah, oh God, there's so many. I think obviously the school that I was working at in particular had, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, a higher number of students from from disadvantaged backgrounds. Yeah. And often the children that would be getting into trouble the most and getting detentions, getting excluded, were those children. And I think it can be very easy as an educator and working in a school to kind of just find those types of students just very difficult. And you're very stressed as a teacher. Yeah. And you've got a lot on your plate, you've got a lot going on and sometimes the patience to deal with those types of students kind of doesn't isn't always there and I fell victim to that as well yeah um, but I think I saw it so clearly the correlation between the types of students that were getting in trouble and not like necessarily doing so well in class mm-hmm. and the sort of background that they came from and there were some very clear examples that I saw as well in in just not just in kind of behavior but also in the curriculum and how the yep. curriculum is taught and I think this is something that is very easy to not realize mm-hmm. and I think the clearest example I have of this is when we were I was teaching them the English language GCSE mm-hmm. and we had a question where they had to do a creative writing piece and the creative writing piece was to write a story. This was like a mock exam for GCSEs. Mm-hmm. So they had to write a story. And the prompt was a picture and just a sentence. And the picture was of the seaside. Yeah. And the sentence was, write about a day at the beach. Which seems, for a lot of people, very a very normal thing to get asked to write yeah. about. But a student put their hand up in my class and then said that they'd never been to the seaside. And they'd never been to a beach. And so instantly that is a structural kind of hurdle that they have to deal with and that's being asked in their GCSE exam and it's worth half of their English language grade doing this yeah this question and they can't access that imagery yeah. they can't access that kind of part of their memory to be able to be creative enough to write a story about that and that and I think there's structural issues within our examination systems that is so inaccessible to a lot of people mm-hmm. and that's really stuck with me at that moment yeah because there was nothing that I could say. I, what I did was get a video up on YouTube of yeah. being at the beach just to try and help them for sort of experience what that's like. But if you've never had that experience and then you're being asked to write about it, that's going to that's gonna be really difficult and that's going to exclude you from being able to succeed very well in, in that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, That leads really nicely into talking about what we do at Good Work, part of which comes from recognizing that actually our education system doesn't work for a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously our focus at Good Work is about supporting those young people who who haven't succeeded in that system in the traditional Mm -hmm. sense. You know, they haven't got GCSEs or A-levels at kind of a high, you know, what's considered a high enough standard to access the sorts of opportunities that they might be interested in. And, you know, what you say about that accessibility, I think, is is a really important piece. What is your take on post-school options and what is available out there and, you know, what we need to be kind of pursuing more of in order to support those students so that when they leave school, they don't just fall off the radar of, you know, local authorities, services, et cetera, that can actually be there to, to potentially support them into the next phase of their lives?
1: I wouldn't ever call myself an expert in kind of post-16 options and mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure there's a lot of local authority organisations and stuff that mm-hmm. are doing really good work in this area. But I think my only kind of take on this is, is making sure that kind of opportunities are accessible to as many yeah. people as possible, which obviously it's like, it sounds obvious to say it, but it's not the case. And I think accessibility is... is is very simple as exposure. Just mm-hmm. even knowing what's out there mm-hmm. is probably one of the biggest hurdles. And I think if you have come from a certain background, you're aware of the vast array of jobs that exist, particularly in these kind of professional, kind of more like some sort of legal consulting sort of jobs. Yeah. You have grown up with parents that have had jobs like that, or parents that have friends that have had jobs like that. And I think for many people in the country, the knowledge that those jobs are even there doesn't exist. And so I think yeah. it starts, I think it starts and it should start very young, but yeah. just having exposure to what the options are and how, yeah. And then obviously how to get there is another one, but that's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? There's lots, there's a, there's very different ways of how, well, yeah, at the minute there's a, there's a very s- simple, there should be very many different ways of how to get there, but there isn't. That's
0: terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, no, not at all. So I wanted to ask as as well about you know your own experience with social mobility, because, as you've kind of you know talked to me about before, that is something that that you've kind of experienced and gone, you know you've but you've also had a very successful kind of educational career. Can you talk a little bit about you know what it was like to go into those environments? without coming from a family particularly where people had gone to those sorts of universities before or those sorts into those sorts of jobs before and kind of how that's manifested for you in your career so far
1: yeah I think it's a bit of journey (laughs) journey. I think it's it's an interesting one when I talk about my experience of social mobility because I never considered myself when I was younger to be from a sort of a less privileged background we were never as a family we were never poor in the traditional Mm -hmm. sense we always had a roof over our heads we always had food on the table but I suppose the reality is that I do come from a very traditionally working class background my dad was a bricklayer his dad was a carpenter his dad's dad was a window cleaner and grew up in a workhouse in the 1940s and so on yeah and I think and yeah and like you said like none of my family had been to university and we didn't really know anybody that had been to university but I never felt like we were were poor because we always had everything Mm we needed yeah. And I think I only realised that my life and my upbringing was quite different to to a lot of, well, not a lot of people, to some people in society. Yeah. When I went to a private boarding school for sixth form. So I received an academic scholarship to go to yeah. a very, very posh school. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the first memories that stood out to me there of feeling very out of my depth was in one of my first English classes so this was for my A-levels I went there mm-hmm. and I took English for A-level and one of my first English classes the English teacher kind of went round and asked us what he had done with our summers mm-hmm. and people were talking some people in my class were talking about these amazing summers that they had in on a boat in the Cayman Islands or like yeah. in their parents ranch in South Africa and it got to me and I was like oh god okay because i had spent the whole summer working as a waitress full yeah. time. And I'd done, like, I'd saved a lot of money that summer. I'd been yeah. proud of myself. And I had a great summer. I was in a pub kind of around the corner. And I think just the the silence that re- I received after yeah. saying that. And the English teacher didn't know how to respond either. Like, everybody found it really uncomfortable that I had spent my summer working whilst they had spent their summers doing amazing things. And yeah. I think from that point onwards, I my, sort of, I was very acutely aware of how different my life had been up until that point and then mm-hmm. it's only kind of continued when I went to Oxford for my undergrad because there's obviously sort of hugely disproportionate number of students from yeah. private schools that attend so yeah I think this continued to kind of highlight the the sort of differences between where we came from so I think because of this yeah because I do come from this traditionally working class background but then I received this private education and then I went on to Oxford for my undergrad and now I work in a very kind of corporate job in central London I would say I no longer fit into this working class category and if I have children they'll have a very different life to what I had growing up so I definitely have experienced what people would call social mobility and I think that but it still stays with me kind of this feeling and everybody talks about imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. but this feeling of I don't know feeling out of your depth and feeling like you need to kind of justify yourself and your presence in certain places um, yeah. I think it does mean that I have a reputation for being quite defensive and I think it's taken yeah. me until now well until I say until now until like the past few years to kind of reflect on that and realize that that's probably an accumulation of feeling out of my depth from the age of 16 when I entered that private boarding school to where I am now being yeah. like I constantly have to, like I said, justify my presence. And if I'm being misunderstood or, I don't know, I, I just, I do feel like I have to go over and above to, to defend myself. And it's, yeah, it's kind but, of
0: very much a... I mean, it's like the classic joke, right? Of like, give me the confidence of, you know, uh, a white man with lots of privilege. Like, we all wish that we had that. But equally, it probably also comes from you know some inherent probably misogyny and classism in the environments that you've been in that actually the words defensive are used and I think that's something that really speaks to me about making sure that young people are not only allowed to be themselves but are also like you know treated with compassion Mm. when they enter whether it's further education or higher education whether it's work it's recognizing that actually that Transition period in, in your life as a young person is incredibly challenging, and work is designed around generally a very white, privileged male norm. And so, behaviors that are associated with that, and I would always say that, you know, some of the most emotional people I ever met were senior, very successful men in business. But the way that they express their emotions, whether it was through anger at things or bossing people around or getting annoyed at people was seen as an accept acceptable because it was a norm in that environment and if you were not one of those people the way that you would express yourself whether that might be through crying if you felt stressed or upset about something which definitely as a woman I've done at work loads of times um is, is seen as like less normal and and making sure that we are able to not just support businesses to kind of reflect on their culture, but also support young people to realize that it's not on them if they feel that way. But coming back to early careers and the world of work, I want to ask you a little bit, because obviously you've done research in this area, so really keen to get your ideas on it. But. Why is it so important that organisations are looking at and thinking about socioeconomic diversity, as well as some of the more traditional D&I agenda items, for want of a better expression? So, you know, gender, ethnicity being the ones that that have traditionally had a lot more focus, and sexuality as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very, it's a very interesting question. I think it's sometimes hard to completely divorce a lot of those other categories, I suppose race in particular I think is very interlinked with socio-economic positioning so I think often when we're talking about one we'll be talking about the other but, yeah. I, but in answer to your question I, I think the first reason that I would give for this is that it's important for people to have views challenged and yeah. that innovation comes from a, having a range of perspectives if you put people in a room that all have very similar life experiences and all look Mm -hmm. very similar they're going to come to something that is far less creative than a group of people that come from very different backgrounds and understand the world in different ways and it's very hard to understand I think uh, I struggle with this all the time thinking about how somebody could see the world different to you because your understanding of the world is so built up on your experiences and what you know but it would be so amazing to live your life in someone else's body and brain for a day Mm. just to see how different the world looks from their perspective and I think for for businesses and organizations like having that range of perspectives is super important and I I think the second reason I'd give is I think just fairness Yeah. I think it's very underestimated. Like, people are always trying to figure out, like, why do we want to invest in social economic diversity? Like, how would it benefit our company? Mm-hmm. But I think as people, we have a fundamental responsibility to be fair and just. And I think that should be a reason in itself. Yeah. To have a range of people in your company that have a range of experiences in life. Yeah. Because that is the fair thing to do um, rather than just getting people in that have had opportunities that mean that they're well positioned to apply mm-hmm. to you so yeah I think there's a couple yeah. of reasons
0: but what would you say to those who say well you know the opportunities are open to everyone but in the interests of fairness we'll take the best person for the job oh so much to say to that that was I a trick it, question
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's this I can go on such a tangent like such a long rant about this please do <laughs> This kind of hits at like the American dream ideal, right? Yeah. Everybody, it's a free country and everyone has access to the same opportunities. And if you just work hard enough, you will be successful. And we don't obviously have like a British dream, but we do definitely have this ideology in the UK. Mm -hmm. And... A very clear example of the fact that we definitely, this is definitely instilled even within our young people. I, from, this is from when I was teaching, actually, I remember asking yeah. my year nine class if they thought that being successful in life was more about how hard they worked or where they came from and the advantages mm-hmm. their family could give them. And bearing in mind, this is a group of students who the majority of them come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Yeah, They all unanimously said it was about how hard you worked which shows how deeply entrenched this kind of idea of us living in a pure meritocracy is. Yeah, And obviously, don't don't get me wrong, it's obviously very refreshing to see that young people understand the need to work hard. But at the same time, I think they're so convinced that all you need is to work hard. And I don't think that we're at a stage in society where that's the case. And I think the problem with an acceptance of this idea is that those people who kind of don't stand to benefit from a system where the odds are stacked against them, will internalise any failure in in education or in the workplace as entirely their own fault. Um, Because we're kind of told over and over, doesn't matter where you come from, anyone can succeed. But if you look at the statistics, only 10% of people from working class backgrounds kind of make it into these higher managerial professional cultural occupations and and even for those that are in the same positions they make less money on average than mm-hmm. their kind of middle or upper class counterparts in similar roles yeah um so it's it can be proven by the facts and the figures that this idea of us living in a meritocracy isn't isn't the case we're not there yet I think we want yeah. to be and we want everybody likes the idea you can you can do it but I think there's a huge underestimation of how much different opportunities and and privileges will propel you forward in life. And like I said, even earlier, just even having the knowledge that there are Mm -hmm. certain routes that you could go down, that isn't even there
0: for some people. There's such an interesting piece in there as well around that kind of individualism. There will always be anomalies. And because of those anomalies, we want to point to them and say, well, then it's possible. And equally, people don't nobody likes the suggestion that they haven't worked hard or that they didn't work hard to get to where they are. It's just that realisation that you can still be a really privileged person and have been really successful and have worked hard through, Mm. you know, that's still possible and that it doesn't actually undermine that to suggest that the reason that, you know, somebody down, down the road or on the other side of town from you didn't get to where you are is, is because they didn't work hard. I think that suggestion in and of itself is it's really damaging, but it's also something that can be incredibly difficult to unpick. And I think I've definitely seen with when we try and work with leaders that people can often get quite defensive about that and about that suggestion that that we don't live in a meritocracy and that actually the idea of meritocracy is, is quite fundamentally flawed because it doesn't reflect the reality of most people's experiences and what it really does is inflate the egos of of people who were already in a very privileged position to begin with
1: trying to find this the exact wording of this quote that I love really hits the nail on the head on this and it's Mm -hmm. it's actually written by a a sociologist called Max Weber Mm -hmm. who wrote in 1915 so over 100 years ago that the fortunate man is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate beyond this he needs to know that he has his right to good fortune yeah so it's it's this exact kind of mentality of Mm -hmm. and I think it's completely fair like you don't ever want to feel like you've only got somewhere because of your circumstances I don't think that's what people are saying I don't that's definitely not I would ever suggest I would never want to take away from the fact that somebody has worked very hard in their life
0: Something that's really important to me, and I know is to you as well, is about measuring impact and making sure that actually the work that we do on improving socioeconomic diversity is, is genuinely meaningful from a kind of social impact perspective. Because there's lots of organizations working in this space, doing really fantastic work in lots of different ways. But in order to have the kind of impact that we want to have at scale, it's important that we are measuring how we work how it impacts young people's lives and making improvements on that so can you talk a little bit about some of the actions we can take and the the approach we need to kind of be focused on in order to ensure that 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 impact happens
1: measuring impact and and measuring what a program is doing is so important and I don't think it happens enough I think it is becoming far more common for people to actually take a step back and think this is actually making a difference but i think there's a lot of interventions there's a lot of programs that are going on in all aspects of society that might not be making any difference at all but people aren't taking the time to actually test those out and see what what the difference is being made so i am a big advocate for this and i think when it comes to good work what i'd say is for me the primary the primary thing that we should be measuring is the retention of yeah. these people, young people in the kind mm-hmm. of professions that, that we're hopefully going to be helping them get into. Yeah. Because there is still a big correlation, again, between between those stu- people. like So universities are cl- the clearest example of this. Young people from working-class backgrounds who get into universities are far more likely to drop out than... Yeah students from more advantaged backgrounds there's about a four percentage point difference between the dropout rates of working class students versus non-working class students yeah and I think what that shows is that yes there might be more working class students maybe getting into these roles and getting into these places these institutions that have previously been quite inaccessible but the way the kind of reception that they get is obviously not kind of making them feel uncomfortable or something's happening when they get to these places Mm -hmm. that means that they're not happy enough
0: to stay. Absolutely. And I think that is something I want us to focus on because you see it a lot with lots of different organizations that have a kind of willing to wave the flag and say like look 50% of our new hires this year were from ethnic minority backgrounds for example and you know certainly with like entry-level programs like grad schemes for example in places like London that have a lot of diversity it's not out of the question. The, that that can be achieved by an organization. But I think there's multiple things to think about. First of all, is you know, what, what do the other diversity statistics look like? How is socioeconomic diversity represented within that group? And also, what does it look like two and five years down the line? Have you retained those young people? Because I think as we'll see increasing evidence, and certainly I think we know anecdotally that's often really not the case because actually we're not bringing young people into a culture that supports them to exist as they are and to thrive in that environment. And part of that is about progression. It's about company culture. It's about training. One of my real criticisms of things like the Kickstarter program, for example, has been that actually the onus on training has all been on organizations. So the Kickstarter program obviously being the program that that in many ways has, has operated similarly to what we are aiming to do with good work but you know that has supported organizations to bring in unemployed young people into non-internships and aside from the fact that it hasn't required them to be paid a living wage which is it's just not acceptable mm-hmm. um it it has also in a lot of organizations people have really struggled because there has been not really much imperative to require any kind of formalized training as part of that and organizations have either had to invest a huge amount of their own resources when they don't necessarily have the expertise to support somebody in that position or those young people have just kind of been left to their own devices and therefore have in many cases either dropped out of the experience not stayed in in long term or just not really got very much out of it and then haven't been retained at, at the end of the program so mm. it's been a really it's it's a really interesting thing to observe because it's really important that when we think about early careers and diversity and inclusion and entry-level talent we're thinking about that whole spectrum from how you advertise a job to that young person getting the promotion at the you know three years later. Yeah I think
1: that actually leads me on to what I'd say is probably the second Mm -hmm. point of impact and it's it's, it would be the progression of those young people within the organization the sort of statistic that I said earlier about yeah people who are, are in those situations aren't necessarily getting the same yeah. promotions or the same pay rises as people from different backgrounds and I think yeah we will consider ourselves successful when once in that environment those people are as best they can kind of treated in a meritocratic way and that's a much harder thing to measure because yeah. it's very longitudinal and will take a much longer time to kind of yeah. see the but that is the ultimate aim right that yeah that absolutely leading and getting promotions just as anybody who does yeah, anybody ever absolutely ever and spent, I think for exactly. me too so
0: much of this as well as around early careers haven't been a great experience for lots of people I know lots of people um you and I are both in our kind of late 20s is that fair yeah um <laughs> hard to hard to accept at times I know. but that's fair <laughs> um So, you know, we both know lots of people who we were either at school or university with and peers of ours who have been through that kind of early careers stage in the last few years. And it is no accident that I have found myself wanting to disrupt what that system looks like, not just from a diversity and inclusion perspective, but also just because I think that we need everyone to have more choices and better information and that actually the culture shift that will come with increasing DEI in early careers across the board will actually positively impact everybody in the long run because it's all about inclusion. You know, it is all about making work a better place for, for all of the people in it to be who they are. So yeah, there's some pretty lofty goals there, but actually I think it's work that needs to be done because that traditional A-levels, uni, corporate job, Route is not working for many people and I know that there's a lot of discontentment out there and I'm pretty sure that you know the amount of job hopping and things that we've seen over the past few years a lot of that has to do with the way that the kind of lack of, of meaning and of support that a lot of young people are finding in jobs that, that they start doing kind of straight out of school or university
1: mm. yeah Your word disrupt, I think, is great there. And that's exactly what I would say good work is doing, is Mm -hmm. really, like, seeking to disrupt this very traditional view of what social mobility is and how it should work. And I think I am definitely guilty of Mm -hmm. having a very one-track mind about how social mobility should work. And I think it was only until I kind of got that very challenge when I was doing my master's that I thought social mobility, you've got to work within the system, got to go to got to get the bright working class kids at uni and then that will Mm. help them in the long run but that's just so not the case for so many people and yeah being upwardly mobile within the current system is one thing but Mm -hmm. that only benefits a proportion of people and I am I'm one of those people I definitely work within the system and within the system of how it is but I was very lucky and I feel myself I would say that I was very privileged to have a a mum for example that would strongly advocate for me and push me Mm -hmm. to aim as high as I can which meant I was able to work my way up this traditional social mobility ladder but a lot of people don't have that they won't have a parent that's advocating for them and pushing them to aim high and so I think what good work is doing seeking to disrupt this traditional view of how social mobility is supposed to work which Mm -hmm. is held by the vast majority of employers sort of like is that they're looking for these bright, young, working-class people that will fit nicely into their already established company culture and demonstrate all the skills and abilities that someone from a much more privileged background is able to demonstrate, which is almost antithetical to the whole idea of social mobility. It's sort of like you're just completely ignoring the differences that people would have had up until the point that they're... That's where
0: making sure that that information is available as well. So, you know, there may be young people who are... Whose families do really want them to succeed, but they don't know anything about getting a job in in a more corporate world, and they don't have the network available to support them in doing that and it's incredibly important that we broaden the scope of the kind of communities that we reach and equally that as you say we absolutely challenge that norm that idea that yes anyone is open our door is open to anyone so long as they are willing to play by the rules of our game as soon Mm. as they get through them yeah and It's not fair and it's not right and it's fundamentally exclusionary to so many people to behave in that way and to suggest that actually it's somebody else's job to fit in here as opposed to our job as a community and as a society or an an organisation to adapt how we work to make it more straightforward for people to fit in. So... As we come to the end of our conversation, I would love to know if there's any further reading or further listening that you would recommend to people who want to know more about the sort of work that you do and things that we've talked about today.
1: One book that I would definitely Mm -hmm. recommend reading is Natives by Akala. So he discusses a lot of similar things that we've been talking about today around social mobility, but Mm -hmm. with the added lens of race, which is... kind of touched on it briefly earlier but Mm. it's it's an incredibly impressive book and just talks about England in particular yeah and race and class it's I think the kind of Mm. subtitle of the book is race and class in the ruins of empire so it's a very very interesting very interesting book I would recommend that and then I mean we talked a bit about evaluation and research but on that note a podcast that I love listening to is more or less by Tim Harford which is on Radio 4 and basically he takes numbers and statistics that are popular in news, politics, everyday life and dissects them with experts and kind of gets behind the truth of them and I think that's kind of one other thing that I'm very passionate about is understanding what data and evidence actually is and I think we hear a lot of numbers thrown at us in the news and often we're not equipped with the knowledge and understanding of how to actually interpret that and what that actually means and it can lead to a lot of decisions being made by yeah. and by governments so that's something that I also yeah. care about so I definitely recommend listening to more or less by Tim Hartford
0: awesome thank you so much obviously it's been really interesting talking to you today yeah thank you for coming thank you for having me if you enjoyed today's episode make sure you share it with friends and colleagues leave us a review and check your subscribed so you don't miss us next week to keep up with all things Good Work, follow us at GoodWork UK on LinkedIn. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by GoodWork, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. We're working to remove barriers for young people from less privileged backgrounds and support businesses to reimagine their approach to entry-level talent and skills. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.